Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bible, start with me to Acts in chapter number two this morning, if you will. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. I always encourage you to follow along for yourself in Scripture. And uh, the, God's Word is where the power is in any preaching. And so see what God's Word has to say. And Lord willing, my message every time that I preach will be based on God's Word. And we'll be able to go back and see, oh, that's actually what it says. And so it's a good thing for you to follow along. If you are using a tablet or a device to follow along, I'll be, uh, at times we'll read aloud together. I'll be reading from the King James Version if you'd like to follow along. We're in Acts in chapter number two. How many of you have ever been, like me, invited to a, a birthday party, or really a party of any kind by a Filipino family? Let me just see. You've been to a, a Filipino party of some sort. I grew up, and some of you are Filipino, so obviously you've been to some of those, but uh, I grew up with some very close friends uh, from the Philippines, and can I just say that I don't mean this to be a, uh, a racial statement, but Filipino parties are the best, all right? I'm not trying to hurt any other nationality, but they are awesome. Their food is amazing, and uh, it's, there's, there, it's, it's just great. And I want to give you a few adv- pieces of advice this morning. If you haven't gone to or you're getting ready to go to a party hosted by uh, Filipino friends or family, number one, I want to tell you this, come hungry. All right, they're going to have plenty of food. They're going to have delicious food. They're going to have more food than probably you can eat or should eat or want to eat. Number two, let me tell you, so not only come hungry, number two, don't come on time. I learned this by experience. We, you know, American culture, we put a time on the invitation, what time to be at the party. Let's say the party's at two. We expect you to be there somewhere around two, 205, 210. I'm looking at some of our Filipino, faithful Filipino families. They don't mean two. They mean 2.30 at the earliest, really more like three. Am I right? And, and you don't want to come. You want to come. I found this out because I showed up to a party, my first Filipino party, and I was there on time. And I was the only one there for about the first 45 minutes. The party ended up having 50 or 60 or 70 people at it, but I was the only one that believed two o'clock or whatever it was was the time you're supposed to be there. So don't come on time. My, my Filipino friends have ta- taught me that there's a thing called Filipino time. They, they operate on a different clock than the rest of us. And, uh, and so you want to come a little late. I've traveled. If you, if you, there's a, an airline. It's called Philippine Airlines. If you ever travel to the Philippines, they're one of the main carriers. I've been to the Philippines a couple of times. And uh, the acronym for Philippine Airlines is PAL. My Filipino friends have told me that stands for plane always late. And that's just a part of their culture. And so don't come, come hungry. Don't come on time. Number three, don't plan on leaving anytime soon. How do American birthday parties work? Let's say Trey, our nine-year-old next, next year is having, this year is having his birthday, his 10-year-old birthday party. We put out, we send an invitation and we say that it's at, it's at two o'clock. We expect you to be there somewhere around two o'clock. And what do we do on our invitations, the American culture? What do we do on our invitations? We put parties at two o'clock and we put a little dash and then we put four o'clock. We put an end time, right? Why? We don't want to spend that much time with you. We want you to know when you're supposed to leave. 
And so we say two o'clock to four o'clock, you're supposed to get there within the five, fashionably late, five, 10 minutes late maybe. And we're probably, if it's my son's birthday party, we're probably not gonna have it at our house because we like you, but we don't like you that much. We're gonna go to a trampoline park somewhere. We're gonna pay them to ex- entertain your children. And by the way, if we, inter- if we invite your kids, parents, we don't want you staying. Drop them off and leave. We don't wanna talk to you for two hours. And we're not going to provide you a great homemade feast. We're going to get the least sustenance possible, some cheap pizza and a little soda. That's what we're going to feed. And then we're going to send you at four o'clock. You better be there. We're going to send your kid back with you. And that's kind of how we, and I might be exaggerating a little, but that's kind of how we operate, right? In American culture, Filipino culture. How does it work on a, on a party with them? If the invitation says two o'clock, show up around three and expect that more people are going to be coming around four and then even more around five, and then six, and then seven. And by the way, on the invitation, there is no end time. And really the party doesn't get going until seven o'clock. And, and, and they expect if you invite the 10 year old, let's say it's a 10 year old birthday party, they want you to bring the 10 year old and the 10 year old's supposed to come for the birthday party and he's supposed to bring his parents and his grandparents and his great grandparents and his barber and his barista and Everybody in his life is supposed to come. I've been to parties, literally, and somebody will walk in and I'll say to the host, oh, who's that? I have no idea. How'd they get invited? I, I don't know. Somebody they know must have invited them. And, and it's, it's, if you get invited by a friend of a friend that got invited, you're welcome. Everybody's welcome. Come on in. We've got enough food for everybody. And we've got, you're walking by on the sidewalk and you smell some of the lumpia. Go on in. You're welcome to the party. It just operates differently. And and that's how it works. What am I illustrating this morning? And by the way, there may be other cultures that operate kind of with that warmth and that hospitality. In American culture, and I know that I'm broad brushing some, but in American culture, I think it's true to say, and it's fair to say, our ideas of hospitality, of community, of relationships are very different from much of the rest of the world. Our idea of who can come over and when and how that works are very different from much of the rest of the world. Let me, let me prove it to you. I want you to, and I ask myself these questions. And I know that COVID creates some different challenges right now with gathering and things for some families. But when was the last time you had a fellow church family over to your home for a meal? When was the last time you or I were over at another church family's home for a meal? When was the last time uh, that, and this is a convicting question for me, how many of your immediate neighbors, somewhere in your neighborhood, 10, 20, 30, 40 houses or condos or apartments around you, how many of them have been in your home for a meal? How many of my neighbors have I been in their home for a meal? I've lived in Lake Forest for a little over three years. And we, we talk to our neighbors and we've, we've taken them gifts and they dropped off baked goods at Christmas. We have a relationship with several of our neighbors, a friendly relationship, a cordial relationship. But I've lived there for three years. You know what the answer is for me? How many of them, my neighbors that live in my neighbor, have been in my home for a meal? The answer is, I'm not proud to tell you, zero. You know how many of my neighbors have been, I've been in their home for a meal? Zero. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying I'm wrong. I'm saying 
our culture really doesn't lend itself to that. Now, you might live in a different place, and maybe you've been there for decades, and you have a little deeper and stronger relation. I get that there are exceptions to that, but generally speaking, that is not how our culture operates. In American culture, we, by nature, live very isolated lives with kind of these unwritten rules of separation and these invisible walls, and we're cordial, and we might have you over here or there, but really, we're going to kind of live our lives, and you live your lives, and that's just kind of how it goes. Our missionary to the Middle East, Stephen Trell, who's preached here a few times, he, he's told us the story and he's told me that he'll be at a store and he's talking to the cashier, to the, the, the shop owner, and, and they'll ask, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, our family lives here. And they'll say, oh, we want you to come over. And number one, it would be very rude to, to not accept that invitation. But number two, we want you to come over for a meal. He said, if, if you get invited to that, what you need to plan on is that's going to be all evening long. It's going to be four, five, six, seven hours. You're going to sit there and there's going to be a spread of food and it's going to come for hours. And that is how they connect is over community and over communal meals. And he'll, he'll stop. He'll say, we'll drop off a, a gift of dates to the, to a neighbor for a, and they'll say, oh, and unexpectedly, they'll say, oh, come on in. And for hours, and, and again, you're supposed, let, let's get cooked coffee and let's get tea going. And, and for hours, just dropping off something at their home, they welcome you into their home. And for hours, you spend that time together there in the, in the Middle East. And, and when was the last time that you showed up unannounced to a friend or a neighbor's house and they invited you in for hours? Who was the last one that came to your house that you invited in for hours? That's not happening, right? We, why do we all have ring doorbells? We want to be able to tell them to go away from our phone. We don't even want to open the door to tell them to go away. It's just not how our culture operates. When was the last time you spent an hour in prayer or Bible study or even just conversation with a fellow believer outside of regularly scheduled church service times. You see, what do we celebrate in America? We celebrate independence. We even have a declaration of it that's part of our founding of our nation. We celebrate independence. What do we celebrate in, in America? We celebrate individualism. We love the stories of a, of a self-made man. We, we teach that you should look out for number one. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, so you've got to take care of yourself. In, in American society, the lone wolf is a, celebrated, is a celebrated character, a celebrated figure. What do we say? It's lonely at the top as an aspirational quote almost, the more successful I am in life, the less people I'm going to be able to allow into my life. It's almost like the higher I go in culture, the less real relationships I have. That mindset of individualism and independence is, and again, I'm not saying that it's all inherently wrong, but it's foreign to much of the rest of the world where they strongly value their tribe, their family, even, even in living situations. And I know that there are different situations, but generally speaking, it is not common for multiple generations of people to live together in America. That's not the norm. M many parts of the world, it's common for three and four generations to live together. Again, I'm not saying one's right or wrong. I'm just saying there are differences to our culture. There are differences to the things that are our norms that we've grown up with, those of us that have grown up in this, in this country. And, and the mindset that is so natural to us in 21st century Western uh, culture is foreign to much of the rest of the world where they value their tribe, their family, their community, and they live for one another and the greater good, not for self. We are an isolated culture. Much of the rest of the world is a communal culture. Our, and, 
in recent days, our isolated culture has been exacerbated even farther with masks where we can't see each other's uh, expressions and with social distancing where, where we're scared to be around a crowd and we're not having folks into our home and we're not going into other people's home. And I understand all of that. But the, the natural isolation in our, in our culture has been even multiplied and magnified over the last year where we are even further isolated from those around us and further isolated from any type of community, friends or family or neighbors or or church. And that mindset of isolation, not only is it foreign to the rest of the world, it is definitely foreign to the pattern of the church in the Bible and the life that Jesus lived and told his followers to live. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, that our isolated, independent mentality in our culture has made its way into our Christianity. What do we view discipleship as? We view discipleship as a 13-week course, one hour a week with somebody that we put on the calendar. Go through this book. What did Jesus view discipleship as? Discipleship was where you lived together for 24 hours a day and went everywhere together. And it wasn't a set of curriculum. It was living, doing life together and learning beyond that curriculum, learning what it was to be a follower of Christ. And it was your lives were intertwined. There was community unlike anything you can, uh, you can imagine. We challenge in, in our culture, we, we highlight, and it's not bad, we challenge people to have their personal devotions every day to have their daily personal prayer, to grow in personal study. We come to church, sit with our immediate family and sing songs that talk much about our personal experience. What was the last song we just sang together? Oh, how I love Jesus. And we sing about in Christ alone, my hope is found. Here I am to worship. Jesus loves me. Lord, I lift your name on high. My hope, my hope is built on nothing less. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. And again, nothing wrong with those songs. We did sing this morning, grace that is greater than all our sin. How great is our God? So we sing some community songs, but often you think about the songs that we sing, very many of them highlight the personal, private relationship. And again, nothing wrong. We sang them today, but so much of, of our Christian experience is, 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 is kind of isolated or, or focused on us individually. The followers of Christ from the very beginning, they were a team, they were a community, they were a family. They were 12 men that left everything to follow Christ. They left their jobs and they left their families and they, they became a, a community. They connected together and did everything together. And what did they say to Jesus when they were wanting to know how to pray? What was their, what was their verbiage? Lord, teach us to pray. And what did Jesus say? Here's the model prayer. When you pray, here's how you should pray. What did Jesus say? Our Father, which art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses and forgive those who trespass against us. Where am I going with all of this? I want you to see it in Acts in chapter two here in just a minute. But in the first few weeks of this year of 2021, I've been preaching through our church's renewed purpose. Why do we exist? Why is liberty here? And, and why, what, what is your purpose as a Christian? What is God's plan for you? I've been preaching through that fourfold purpose, that renewed purpose for why we exist as a church. I know it was three weeks ago when I preached this one, so we'll see if anybody remembers. But the first purpose, let's review. Talk to me now. The first reason we exist as a church, it comes from the Great Commission. What's that verb? Anybody remember it? We exist to share the gospel. Remember that? 
What did Jesus say? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Why does the church exist? Why do we have programs? It's to get the gospel out. He left us here to share the gospel with everybody that we can. We exist to share. Then we get saved. And I preached this two Sundays ago. What's the second part of our church purpose and your purpose as a Christian? We're saved. Now what? We're not supposed to stop there. We're supposed to remember the verb. We're supposed to grow in the gospel. Grow in the gospel. What did he say? Teach, and then he said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. You and I, it's a lifelong pursuit to know God and to know more about him and to know him more and to grow in him. We're supposed to grow in the gospel. I use the illustration that the Bible uses of newborn babes and we're not supposed to stay as spiritual infants. We're supposed to grow up into spiritual maturity. The purpose for the church, why do we have church services? That you'll grow. I hope today you'll grow a little in the gospel and it's another meal. And why do you read your Bible? You grow. Why Bible studies? To grow. So we share the gospel. We grow in the gospel. Then number three, I want you to see the third part of our purpose is to connect through the gospel. To connect through the gospel. That's what we'll be looking at today. You see, God intends the church to be a place where we build deep, lifelong, impactful, life-changing relationships. God intends the family of God, the church of God, fellow believers, to be a place where we build deep, lifelong, impactful, life-changing relationships. Christianity was never intended to be lived in isolation it was always meant to be lived in community. And by nature, our culture pushes that away. Again, we are very individual, very, by nature, we're more connected than we've ever been and we're less connected than we've ever been. By nature, we live very private lives and and Christianity was never intended to be lived in isolation. It was meant to be lived in community. Iron, sharpening iron. What did Paul tell Timothy? He said, hey, Timothy, the things that that thou hast heard of me, what did he say? Among what? Many witnesses. The thing that I shared with the whole community of you. The same commit thou to faithful what? Men, plural, who shall be able to what? Teach others also. Plural. Do you see it? Every step of God's plan is relationships, family, together. It's, it's life on life. It's, it's investment. It's praying. It's helping. It's, it's working together. The Christian life is a very personal pursuit, but it is not supposed to be an individual pursuit. It is a very personal pursuit, but it is not intended to be an individual pursuit. Look at Acts in chapter number two, beginning in verse number 41. We're here at Pentecost, the, the swaddling clothes of the, the early church here. The, the, the church is exploding. The church of Jesus is just getting off the ground. And Peter preaches at Pentecost, preaches the, the gospel. Notice what happens, Acts two, verse 41. Would you read it aloud with me? Acts two, verse 41, ready? Begin. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. You see the words there, then they, group, that were added, and then it says were added unto them, group. We've got groups of people. They added, the church is exploding, people, groups, community. So now now I want you to read what it says, brand new, 3,000 brand new believers added to the church. The church has exploded. What does the church look like? Look at verse 42. And they, group, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine 
and fellowship and in breaking of bread. Some people suggest that that was a meal together. Others suggest that may have been communion, the Lord's table. Either way, we know there were meals together. Later on, we'll see it. Breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Notice verse 44. And what's that next word? And what? All that believed were, what is it church? Were together and had all things common and sold, see the word, their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There's a great unity to this group together, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Verse one of chapter three, now Peter and John went up what church? together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. Well, I've walked with Jesus for three years. I learned everything I need to know. I'm going to go, I'm, I'm my own man. No, they, they're together, community, connection through the gospel. The early church example here is one that I fear is so foreign to us today in our Western culture. We say, and I'm not talking about liberty. I, I believe liberty is a beautiful church family, but one of my passions is that we'll grow in this area and we'll grow in developing these things and this culture in our church. But we say, meaning the American church large. We call ourselves church families. We love the idea of having a church family, but I'm afraid we fail to live it far too often. We have superficial relationships where God intended deep relationships. We share external platitudes with, well, how you doing? Oh, it was foggy today. Oh, did you get a donut on the way in? Oh, it's good to see you. Oh, okay. And then we leave and, and it's nothing wrong with some small talk, but we share external platitudes when God intended for us to share internal passions and pursuits and pains with one another. We, we can attend ye, a church for years without ever truly inviting somebody into our real lives, our victories, our struggles, our highs, our lows, our joys, our tears. Church family, I want to suggest to you this morning, that's not how it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to live in some self-imposed Christian bubble where you sit around a lot of believers every week, but you never invite them into your life. That's not what God intended. We see it here and we'll see it some more today. God wants us to connect with others through the gospel. By the way, it is the gospel of Christ that unites us. It's not our, our, it's not our, our country of origin that unites us. It's not our, our, our tax bracket that unites us. It's not the college we went to that unites us. It's not our religious upbringing and traditions that unite us or the type of, the, I, I, I like that kind of song. Or this. Those are not the things that unite us. Here, what we see in the church, it's the gospel that connects us, the message, the truth of Jesus Christ. What is Peter? Peter preaching, you can go back, I won't for the sake of time, you can go back to verse, uh, with Peter to verses 22 through 24 and, and even 41 and 42. Peter is preaching the gospel, Jesus crucified, buried and risen again. And who's he preaching it to? And again, for sake of time, I won't go back there, but you can go back to verses 8 through 11, I think it is. He's preaching to people, remember they were speaking in tongues? He's preaching to people that speak all different languages from different places, with different upbringings, with different traditions, with different backgrounds. With the, He's speaking to, to people with all these differences. And what does this Bible say? They were all together. What connected them? The gospel of Christ. They connected through the gospel. 
And, and I want to show you this morning what happens in a biblical gospel community where we are connecting as God intended. What I believe God wants for us here at Liberty, what God wants for you and what God wants for me. Number one, I see here in this passage, what will you find or what does God intend for you to find in your Christian experience in the body of Christ, the church of God? What does he want? Number one, if you will connect through the gospel, number one, you'll find spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. There is growth that you will experience in your spiritual life that you'll never experience alone. There are things you'll learn from others by walking together, serving together, crying together, praying together, laughing together that you can never, and we have more, more Christian content available to us than any generation has ever had. And I'm not against all of it. Podcasts and websites and, and online services. And we have, we archive our services and, and religious programming on television and radio broadcasts. We have all of this content and I'm not against it. And it's good. In fact, I encouraged you two weeks ago to put some of that into your daily life to grow in the gospel. But be careful. That is not, online church is not a replacement for the corporate gathering. It's a poor substitute. And I get it. There are people, and that's not meant to, as a guilt trip to anyone that's watching. There are people right now that are in unique situations where the online service is a blessing and can be used, but that is not a long-term substitute for the corporate gathering. Why? God intends for us to grow together. It's his plan all through scripture. It's what he wants. Why is it? Jericho, you, you're, you're, you're right now in your residency at UC Irvine. You're a doctor. How many years did you go to school? Medi all, all told, eight, ten years, something like that, six, eight years. I, it's too many and too expensive to remember. He tries to block that out, right? A lot of years in the classroom. But why with doctors? They learn a whole lot from the books. and in the Why do they make them go do a residency? Because there are things you can only learn following a doctor around. There are things you can only learn when you're in real-life situations with somebody who's been there and you see how they respond to that. And by the way, we find the same example with Jesus. We can learn some book knowledge, and we should, and it's good, but there are some things in the Christian life you can only learn by walking with another believer to walk through that and, and learning and somebody that's already been there helping to guide you through that. And we learn together. We study together. We worship together. We sing together. We pray together. We have questions, and we find answers together in God's word. We share what we are learning and what we've been taught. We pray together. You see the last three words of verse 42. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. Notice what it says in verse 42, the last three words. And in prayers. They're praying together. We know what is going on in each other's lives and we lift each other up. Is that your reality in your church experience? Is that what you find? We, we were that's what we're supposed to find. We're supposed to connect through the gospel. If you will, you'll find spiritual growth. Number two, what do I see here? You'll find real relationships. Real relationships. Notice verse number 42. See what the Bible says. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Notice this. And fellowship. And in breaking of bread and in prayers. Skip down to verse 44. And all that believed were together and had all things common. Verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple at church and breaking bread from house to house in each other's homes did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. What do I see here? I see in, in this brand new church a whole bunch of people that didn't know each other, but the gospel brought them together. I see real relationships being formed. May I suggest, church family, that some of our closest friends in the world should be a part of our Christian community. And that takes some time. I understand that. 
But the people that celebrate the big events in our lives and, and that the, the people that, that we, that mourn the most difficult events in our lives with us and the people that we call at midnight when we have an emergency and, or we, we send a text or an email when we need prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, life together. The Bible says to weep with them that do weep, to rejoice with them that do rejoice. How do you do that if there's no real relationship and you don't know what they're weeping about and you don't know what they're rejoicing about? Do you see it? So much of our Christianity can become so external and shallow, not only in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with fellow believers. And I've been there and at times I'm still there. What did, what did Jesus say by this? Shall all men know that you are my disciples? Okay, you're going out. Here's how people are gonna know you're a follower of Christ. What did he say? That you have real relationships. That's what he said. That you have love one toward another. This is how the world is gonna know that I have changed your life, that you've given your life to me. Here's how they're gonna know it. The relationships you've built with other followers of me and the way you treat them, the love you show to them. People are gonna see that and it's gonna be different than anything they've ever seen. They're gonna see that in their lives. And, and today, this, this afternoon, after or this morning, after our morning service, we're having that family cookout. And a few times a year, we, we'll do things, we'll do what we call a modified service schedule and, and we'll have a morning service and then we'll maybe have a big fellowship or, or we'll have a service opportunity where we'll go out into the community together and serve and, and do things. And we'll do that in place of the Sunday evening service. Why do we do that? Is that because, well, we just didn't have anybody that wanted to preach and I didn't know what I wanted to preach. I've got more things I want to preach than I have services to preach them. No, it's not. It's, there's nothing like that. That's not why. And we have about 150 corporate gatherings a year where me or one of our assistant pastors or a guest pastor preaches to you. We have many opportunities for us to grow in that way. But one of the reasons we started a few years ago, a few times on a Sunday, home Bible fellowships, and we started Liberty Loves Community Outreach, and we, we today have this fellowship. Why do we do those things? Is it because, well, we just wanted to spend some extra money and provide you a quick meal so you could eat and then leave? And no, the reason is, we're, I'm hoping that many of you will plan to stay after the service, and, and you'll stay for an hour or two, and you'll sit down at a table with someone you know, and you'll deepen that relationship. Or you'll sit down at a table with somebody you don't know, and you'll start a new relationship. And what happens, my prayer is, when times like that, I had one of our newer members ask me, they said, man, you Baptists, you sure eat a lot. You guys have food like every time I turn around. Well, some of that comes from right here. Breaking of bread, they're in each other's homes, eating their meat with gladness. Why? Because in much of the world and in biblical culture, much of the connection was done around Food times, opportunities to fellowship and eat together. So why do we have the family cookout with games for the kids and some of the adults? We've got some prizes and gift cards. They're going to do a punt, pass, and kick thing. And, and you guys can go relive your glory years out there after church. And we'll find out how good of a high school quarterback you were. And why are we doing some of that stuff after church today? Why, why is that? We're doing those things just so, well, we, just, we, we thought that that was more important than preaching tonight. And, and we just wanted to laugh a little bit. Oh, no, not more important. But we, instead of you coming to tonight, and I'm thankful for it, and sitting here for an hour and hearing me preach again and then leaving, we said, you know what, a few times a year, instead of that, let's encourage people to come in the morning and stick around for a couple hours afterwards and hopefully begin to connect through the gospel. And so a relationship begins to get formed in a Liberty Loves Community Outreach event or in a fellowship, all of a sudden, when you have a Bible question, you have somebody you can go to. When you have a prayer need, you have someone you can talk to. When you have a, a praise and an answered prayer, you have somebody you can rejoice with. 
That's, that's, the, that's the purpose and the picture of the church is to laugh together, to cry together, to pray together, to help one another. Iron, sharpening iron, not just we wanted to feed a couple hundred people a free lunch and, and get out of a, an evening service. Not at all. We want to foster opportunities for you to, to begin relationships, to strengthen relationships, to, to deepen relationships. Number one, I see in, in a gospel community what should happen, spiritual growth. Number two, real relationships. Number three, unforced generosity unforced generosity happens when we connect through the gospel. We naturally look for others we can bless. We'll take up special offerings to help a brother or sister in need here in Orange County or around the world. And our church does that throughout each year, multiple times. We hear of somebody in need or a ministry in need or a country in need, and we'll take up a special offering. Someone in our church is hurting or struggling. We drop off some groceries to a young family that might be struggling. And by the way, when I say we, I'm not talking about just the church leadership. I'm saying we. We drop off some groceries to a young family that might be struggling. We slip a gift card to a single adult who's, who's having a hard time making ends meet as they get their life off the ground. We, we, we offer to babysit for that single parent, that mom or dad, so that they can get a few hours to themselves. What is that? Not well, and we try to do some of those things, and we have a missions program, and we, we give to benevolence funds, and we do some of those things through the church. But what do we see when, it, when, when, the, when there's true community in a church? That stuff just starts organically happening. It's unforced. And we give because we've been given so much. Look at verses 44 and 45, if you will, in Acts 2. I want you to see it, verses 44 and 45. Notice what it says. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Some people have pointed to that and said, see, God's plan is socialism. I don't believe that's what that's being taught there. I don't believe socialism is a biblical idea. I, that's not what's be, socialism is not being encouraged here. What is generosity? There was a group that this wasn't the apostle saying to be a follower of Jesus, you got to go sell everything you have and give it to us so that we can give it to other people. No, this was a group of people that loved each other, that had developed some real relationships that were growing in the apostles doctrine. They were growing in Christ and they realized, you know what? There's some people here that they really can't serve God the way they should because they're really struggling with some material goods. And God, you've given me more material goods than I need. Let me, what do we see later on in Acts? What happened? Some people went and sold their house and their lands. Remember that? They sold every, now everyone didn't do that. It wasn't a mandate, but there were some people unforced said, you know what? I've got a property I don't need. Let me sell that so that I can meet the needs of some people within the family, within the body. Let me help some people there. And, and it's unforced generosity. What did Jesus tell the rich young ruler? He said, and he said, how do I, how do I get into heaven? He said, I've kept all the laws for my youth. What did Jesus say? Oh, all you need to do, just one more thing, go sell everything you have and give it all to the poor. What does the Bible say? The rich young, young ruler went away what? Sad. Je now Jesus wasn't saying, if you want to go to heaven, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's not what Jesus was saying. What was Jesus saying? If you're going to follow me, you need to hold the things of this world loosely and be willing to say, God, whatever you've given me, I'll give it back to you. And if I can take what I have, God, it's, my life is not about me. My life is about you and others. That's what he was teaching. Generosity should not be done out of necessity or manip manipulation. But the Bible says from a cheerful heart, a willing heart, because the Lord loveth a cheerful giver. The pastor, you shouldn't give 
give this morning online or in the offering box on the way out because the pastor manipulates you or puts some guilt trip on you or, or, or emotional plea to you. And, and if you don't do this, uh, if, if you don't give 10% of your income from this week today, when you go out, your car's probably going to break down this week. And we give out of this fear. That's not what happens in a true, well, I'm scared if I don't give some certain amount that God's going to strike me with lightning. No, that's, that's not the heart God wants. By the way, you might give 25% of your income from this week and your car might break down this week. But it's not a prosperity gospel. No, I don't know what will happen, but it's, it's unforced. It's God, you've given me so much. How much of what you've entrusted to my care do you want me to give back to you? The Bible says, as a man purposeth in his heart, so let him give. When you are connected through the gospel and you truly love God, his people, and his work, it will be a joy to give. I can't wait to give to support more missionaries. I can't wait to give to see the, the project done here. I can't wait to give so that we can run those bus routes. I can't wait to give so that we can uh, send 100,000 copies of scripture later this month through the Seedline Project. I want, I can't wait to give to help that scholarship for that family that couldn't go to the Christian school unless we help them. I can't wait to do that. That's what we see here, isn't it? When they connected through the gospel, they had everything together. And again, I'm not talking about we all need to go live on a social commune somewhere. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, you know what? God's blessed me. I know somebody else that needs a blessing. Let's bless them. That happens when you have a true love for God and his people and his work. Number four. Number four. What do we find when we connect through the gospel? We find deep joy. Deep joy. Look at verse 46. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with what, church? Did eat their meat with what? Gladness and singleness of heart, unity. What a great life. They had friendship. They had fellowship. They had food. Their needs were met. They cared for one another. They had gladness. They ate together with joy. They had unity, singleness of heart. That is what God wants for his church. God doesn't want you coming because you have to. And, and God doesn't want you, well, you know, and sometimes we're kind of, we become, the, if we're not careful, these bitter, old, cantankerous Christians and always finding what's wrong with that person over there and that one over there and that church and that pastor and, and all. That's no, no. There's a gladness, a joy to serving God. When we connect through the gospel, we'll find joy that we wouldn't find elsewhere. Number five, what do we find in this passage? We'll find that we become a beautiful witness. Would you look at verse number 47? Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Again, remember back in verses 8 through 12, they were speaking in tongues. Why? People from all different backgrounds, languages, things. And they were all together. And why were they getting saved? I believe one of the, obviously the preaching of the gospel. I believe one of the reasons was, it says here, after all this happened, they had favor with all the people. When they lived in gospel communities together with joy, with unity, with gladness, with fellowship, with generosity, with real relationships, the Bible says, and daily people were getting saved. You know what I believe part of that was, as we read it here? You know what I believe it was? People looked and said, man, those people have something I don't have. They've got a relationship with God that I don't have and I need it. 
and they've got a love for their fellow man and they've got brothers and sisters in Christ. They've got a family that I don't have. I need what they have. And when you and I, by the way, people come to church here or, or on your social media presence or at work and they know you're a believer and you're constantly bad-mouthing a fellow Christian and you're constantly bad-mouthing everything in the world and current events and you're constantly bad-mouthing and griping and angry and bitter and, and selfish and you're never generous. You never give to anyone at work and you never do anything kind for somebody and, and, and they hear you talking bad or on social media about this pastor or that or this thing or that. And whatever. Why would they want what we have? I'm bitter. I'm lonely. I'm selfish. That's a terrible witness of what God's done in our lives. But what do we see here? A beautiful witness. They had gladness, singleness of heart. They praised God. They had favor with all the people. They had a good reputation without. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. People looking at that gospel community and saying, I want what they have. I want the relationship they have with God. I want the relationship they have with fellow believers. I want the joy they have. I want the spiritual growth they have. I want the, the generosity they have. They, they hold the things of this world so loosely. They're just always willing to help somebody. Why are they so different from me? I need the Jesus that they have. Is there anybody in our lives that looks at the way that we live and says, I need what they have? A beautiful witness. If you and I are angry and bitter and gossiping about others and selfish and lonely, why would anybody want what we have? And then lastly, what do I see? And we could pull out some other things, but we'll stop here. I see number six, lifelong partnerships. Chapter three, verse number one. Now Peter and John went up, what church went up? Together into the temple. Peter and John could have said, well, we're kind of the leaders of the church. We're kind of, we were kind of big stuff. We were the inner three with Jesus. I learned everything I need to know from Jesus, Peter could say. And John could say, I learned everything I need. I'm going my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be my own boss. It's my time to do my thing. And what does it say? Peter and John went up together. It wasn't a competition. They were a team. They were a family. They loved one another. What do you find as you continue on with the early church in Acts? When one of them's in jail, where are the rest of them? Are they home by themselves in fear, self-preservation mode? Oh no, they're all together praying for one another. Lord, would you please let Peter out of prison? Peter gets out of prison. The, the maid comes and tells him, Peter got out of prison. He answered her prayer. Be quiet. We're praying for Peter to get out of prison. He's not out of prison. Leave us alone. There's no way he's out of prison. They put him in prison. Let us pray to God that Peter will get out of prison. No, he's there. He's not there. He's there. What were they doing? Now, they, had, they lacked faith at times, which is good because sometimes we lack faith. But what do we see? When one of them had a need, they banded together to love and support and pray and help one another. And, and when, they, when Peter got out, they all rejoiced together. And Peter said, shut up. They, remember, they started yelling. They were so excited. Peter's here. He's like, would you be quiet? I just got out of prison. I really need to get in here. Keep your voices down. But they rejoiced together. They wept together. They prayed together. They loved together. When one, they, they were truly a family. They, they had that, that connection through the gospel. As you go through Acts, you see it. We, if we're not careful in our, in our lives, in our society, we have turned uh, the church into a consumer relationship. Just like I go to my favorite barber and my favorite restaurant and my favorite grocery store, I go to my favorite church. 
and I go to the church that meets my needs, and I go in with my family to the place that has a good children's program for my kids where they sing the songs that I like so I can sit there and get a good feeling about the songs and get a good feeling about the message, and I go because that pastor makes me laugh or whatever it is, and I get some helpful truths that will enrich my life this week as I go about building my career and increasing my portfolio and contributing to my success, and I give God that hour, and I sit around hundreds of people, but I really have no relationship with any of them. That is not what God intended for your Christian life. He intended for us to connect through the gospel beyond just sitting together to truly, and again, I understand that takes some time. And I understand if you've only been here for a week or two or a month or two or three or four, that you're not gonna have lifelong friendships in the first few months or even maybe the first year or two or three. It takes some time. But did you know the people in this church that have deep, close relationships, you know you know what's, what's common about them? You know who it is that has those deep relationships? The ones that want to. The ones that reach out and have somebody into their home or go out together and get coffee together and begin to pray together and shoot an encouraging text and get to know each other. The ones, and the ones that can come for years and have no relationships, you know who they are? The ones that decide to. I'm gonna keep, and I understand everyone has different personalities. I understand everybody isn't the extrovert. They're introverts and I understand that. I get it. You don't have to be best friends with everybody in this church. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is God didn't intend for you to live your Christian life in isolation. It's dangerous. He wants you to connect through the gospel. The church was never supposed to be a consumer transaction that you benefit from. It is supposed to be an authentic community that you belong to and sacrifice for. I love America. I was born in America. I've lived in America. If God wants me to, I'll die in America. I'm not against America. But I want us to ask ourselves this morning, has our American individualism and independence snuck into our view of the Christian experience in the body of Christ. Isn't that an interesting word? The body of Christ? I didn't come up with that. That's in the New Testament. That's what, what Paul calls the church. He likens it to a physical body. The body of Christ. Oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? I'm a small part of a bigger, a bigger entity. What would you think about your body if your finger decided to stay home from church today? And your foot decided to stay at work on Friday and your ear stayed in the car when you got here? What would you think about your body? Guess what? Your body wouldn't be very healthy if that's what it did. Your body wouldn't function as it should. And, and if you had a bunch of members that began to do that regularly, pretty quick, you would have a body that was of no use whatsoever. And yet, we don't understand we are a small part of a bigger entity. We are the body of Christ, the church of God here. We are the body of Christ. And God wants us to not be off on some island by ourselves. No, we are interconnected and we all have a different part to play. We all have different strengths and weaknesses and we all have different gifts and personalities. But God wants to bring all of those together to form a beautiful body that shows the rest of the world that Jesus is king and that he changes lives. We are called to be the body of Christ. So I want to review, if you will commit to faithful involvement in the life of your church as God intended, I believe if you will connect through the gospel, you will find spiritual growth. You will find real relationships. You will find unforced generosity in your life. You will find deep joy. You'll become a beautiful witness and you'll find lifelong partnerships. By the way, you'll also find a great protection in your life. May I give you a final verse and illustration? What does the Bible liken Satan to in 1 Peter? I think we have that verse. 
1 Peter chapter 5. What does the Bible liken Satan to? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring what, church? As a roaring what? Walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He, I didn't do that. Peter did as he, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he likened Satan to a lion. I was in Africa last year for the first time, and I went on a safari. Some of you heard that story uh, as we saw some lions coming by um, our, our, our safaris there. And, and we're talking to the guide, and the guide said lions, they look for three types of prey. They look for three types of animals, generally speaking, when they're looking for prey. They look for either the young. They'll look for the young, which is why mother, mother bears, we call them, are so fiercely protective of their young because they're not old enough, mature enough, strong enough to defend themselves against attacks. So they'll look for young because they're easy targets. They'll look secondly for the wounded. An animal that's been wounded and can't fully defend itself because it's, it's struggling, it's limping along in life. And then they'll look for the isolated. That's where the lion will attack. May I suggest... It's not all the only ones that lions attack, but those are their three top targets. May I suggest, probably those are the three top targets of Satan as well. The young, baby Christians who aren't quite grounded in their faith enough that an attack comes or, or, or something comes in their life and they're not really, their faith isn't strong enough to defend against that attack. And they end up getting devoured, spiritually speaking. Sometimes it's the wounded, which is why you need to be careful when you're in a, in a struggling time in life and you're maybe in a traumatic season of life or something major has happened. You need to be careful because we can tend to make decisions, maybe get angry at God, get bitter at God, feel like, well, the church let me down there. And Satan can use times of wounding in our lives to draw us away from the pack, if you will, to devour us spiritually. And then, you know what the third one, I believe Satan becomes an easy target for Satan, the isolated. When did, when did Peter deny Christ three times? When he was all by himself. He didn't have James and John there to encourage him to kind of whip him back into shape. Peter by himself, Satan. What happened when, when trouble came? They all scattered. They, they got isolated and, and in their lives, they, they betrayed Jesus when they didn't have the strength of them together. They, they scattered. And in our lives, that isolation, if we're not careful in our lives, we become isolated from the family of God. That Christian who feels all alone can give in to loneliness or discouragement or attacks or losing all hope. By the way, in the animal world, what's the cure for all three of those? How do they protect? They stay the strength of the pack. They stay. You'll watch certain animals. They'll keep the, the little baby in the middle of them and the big ones will walk all around. What are they doing? They're protecting them from outside attacks. You're a young believer that's weak in your faith. You're a hurt believer, a wounded believer. You, you, you feel lonely and isolated. What do you need to do? You need to connect as strongly as you can through the gospel and let the church help you and walk with you and encourage you through those times. Pray with you and love you and strengthen you and encourage you through those times. The cure and protection for all three of those is that strength of the greater family. While on our trip, we were on a private island for about a week. And literally, you could walk around it in 10 minutes, and we couldn't go anywhere else. So um, much like Joe and Renee, my wife got tired of me, Joe, after a little while. So I spent a lot of time reading. But no, she, I don't think she did. But uh, I spent a lot of time reading. But I read this book, and I'll, I'll close with this. I'll read a page out of it, and I'll be done. I read this book, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. And it talks about Jesus and how he taught and trained and walked and, and, and much of his Jewish culture, that first century Eastern mindset that I don't really naturally comprehend or understand when I read the Bible because I have a 21st century Western mindset and culture that I, that I know. And so the first century Eastern mindset is a, little, is a little strange for me, but 
I read this and, and I thought about it immediately, the message I was going to be preaching today. And it says here, the writer says, as Western individualists, we forget what Jesus' reality was like. Just think, most of his ministry was spent living side by side with his faithful disciples, traveling with them on foot from town to town, camping out everywhere they went. Many an evening would have been spent sharing a meal with strangers who had generously invited them into their homes, as was the custom with visiting rabbis. Even when Jesus made a point of getting away from the clamorous crowds, he usually did so in the company of his disciples. Remarkably, Jesus never sent his students out alone, but always in pairs. He knew their critical need for partnership. If anything, we see Jesus relishing the company of others. The disciples were surprised, for instance, at the delight he took in, in little children. On one occasion, when they wanted to shoo away the hungry crowd, have you ever been there? You're hosting someone in your home, and either you say to your wife, or your wife says to you, can you get these people out of here? I need some peace and quiet. Like, we're done. We're done hosting. Get them out. All right, have a word of prayer. Let's close it down. Any, am I the only one that's been there? Okay. Anybody else been there? Get these people out. That's how the disciples were. Let's get this crowd out of here. We're tired of them. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He multiplied a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish so that everyone could eat dinner together. In fact, his public ministry was initiated in the midst of a party when he turned water into wine at a wedding feast. Following Jesus means sharing our lives in community where the richness of life will unfold. Yet solitude is still to be prized in the craziness of our modern world. Times alone with God and away from daily pressures can help us discern the still small voice of God. But for most of us, solitude should not be the norm. Instead, we should look for opportunities to connect with others in meaningful ways, especially since modern culture seems to be spiraling in on itself with each person becoming ever more isolated. As writers, we both know what it's like to spend much of the day sitting alone in front of our computers. Many others spend eight hours a day at the office sitting in tomb-like cubicles. What happens when people return home and zone out online? YouTube videos, video games, and Facebook are poor substitutes for the laughter and love of family and friends. Pastor Robert Stone points out that Americans are some of the loneliest people on the planet, saying that in most societies, people don't experience loneliness as acutely as Americans do. In other cultures, people are rarely alone physically or emotionally. Relatives, neighbors, and even strangers are a normal part of everyone's life, Stone observes. Not so in America. Our individualism and our wealth have allowed us to minimize our contact with others to our detriment. This problem of friendlessness exists even in our churches. In the book, The Friendless American Male, Larry Richards is reported as saying that in church, we sit together and sing together and greet one another cheerily as we leave at the end of a service. We do all of these some things sometimes for years without forming any real personal Christian relationships. Our words often seem superficial. Here's what he says. The church therefore becomes a place where Christians live alone together. Attending church may enable us to hear a great sermon and sing rousing songs, but we are missing out if we are not also befriending and relating to each other in deeper ways. Again, that's why an online service can never long-term replace God's plan for his children. We need each other. And I want to challenge you this morning to plug into this community like never before. Our prayer is, as things get a little more back to normal, we'll create more opportunities for connection. But some of that needs to happen on your own. Plug into community. God did not intend for you to live the Christian life in isolation. Let's do all that we can to truly connect through the gospel. Let me say it like this. 
Let's try to do our best to make the church more like a Filipino party where everyone is welcome, there's lots of good food, and we can't wait to spend as much time together as possible. And we might even break out the karaoke machine every now and again and sing a little bit together. God wants us to, yes, share the gospel and see people saved. Yes, grow in the gospel personally, but also to connect through the gospel. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.